Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hello, everybody. Each month on the next Real Speakeasy, we invite an industry guest to join us. And instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, cinematographer Sam Levy. Now based in New York, Sam grew up near Boston where his movie buff father introduced him to such cinematic classics as Seven Samurai and The Virgin Spring at a young age. 
Before long, he and his friend were making short films with a VHS camera. His burgeoning love for film eventually led him to Brown University and the Rhode Island School of Design, where one of his teachers, experimental filmmaker Leslie Thornton, gave him the spark he needed to figure out how to turn his idea of being a cinematographer into a reality. While working as a camera assistant, Sam shot his first film, a horror movie with such a tight budget that they had to shoot it on mini-DV. Sam continued working as a camera assistant with the likes of legendary cinematographer Harry Savitas while he built his resume as a cinematographer on other low-budget features, finding inspiration from such greats as Sven Nykvist, Nestor Almendros, Gordon Willis, and Conrad Hall. Sam has worked with Kelly Reichardt on Windy and Lucy and several films with Noah Baumbach, Francis Ha, While We're Young, and Mistress America. In fact, with While We're Young, Sam actually supervised the printing process of its 35mm print in New York's Technicolor Film Lab, which sadly ended up being the last film print ever made there. Most recently, he worked with Rebecca Miller on Maggie's Plan, starring Julianne Moore, Ethan Hawke, Bill Hader, Maya Rudolph, Wallace Shawn, and Greta Gerwig, currently in theaters. And Sam is currently lensing HBO's Crashing from Judd Apatow and Pete Holmes. Welcome to the show, Sam. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. This show it's... has been such a long time coming. <laughs> I know. It's, it feels good for this to be happening. I know, right? Um, I, uh, I would like to start with a very brief question. You uh, have worked now with uh, M- Michelle Williams uh, in uh, Wendy and Lucy. Yes. And you worked with uh, Katie Holmes in The Romantics. Uh, yes. What is your plan to check off the rest of the cast members of Dawson's Creek? Well, it's top secret, um, <laughs> but um, I could be convinced to reveal it to you guys. I'm just feeling a Vanderbeek vehicle with your name behind the camera. Yeah. I can yes. just feel it. That it's would be amazing. Coming. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. I've actually worked with Katie on two projects. Uh, the Romantics was one, and I was actually a camera operator on a movie called Pieces of April. That, that, oh yeah, um, that we did before that. Nice, that's too funny. Great, uh, great works from fine young actors all around. It's nice to see what they have done with their careers since yeah. uh, since the Creek. Absolutely, yeah. We're not talking about that today. No, so yeah, so what movie are we talking about? We've got uh, one of your favorites, I guess, that we're going to be talking about today, huh? Yeah, Fat City. It's a little bit of John Huston. That's right. Why is this one of your favorite films? What uh, what stands out as uh, as something in this film that just makes it, uh, you know, a film that you love and you really love to talk about? Everything stands out about Fat City. Um, as a cinematographer, the, the photography is exceptional, but just as a as a film lover, film buff, cinephile, whatever you want to call it. Uh, performances are amazing. The uh, music is amazing. The editing is amazing. The production design. It's just incredibly evocative. And it has, it's just, to, to me, has some great hallmarks of something very cinematic. There, it's it's a, a boxing movie, but it's also a movie about alcoholics it has like great melancholy um but it's also it doesn't take itself too seriously there's great comedy um nicholas colasanto who later went on to play coach in, in cheers the tv show cheers is is in the movie as as a boxing trainer and he's incredibly funny it's the thing i always think of first if anyone happens to ask me what what my favorite movie is and if i have to just pick one I usually think of this one. Come and lay down by my side. Let me buy you a drink. 
remember when you first uh, when you first saw this film? Kind of where were you in your in your sort of career? Well, I first heard of this movie before I saw it. I it was it was mentioned a lot in uh, when I first started working as as a camera assistant. I would read interviews by cinematographers of the day. You know, um, like in the early to mid '90s, a lot of people cited this movie as a big influence on them. I, I don't hear it mentioned as much these days, but I think the generation just prior to, to mine of, of DPs was heavily influenced. Um, so I read about this movie a lot before I saw it, probably first saw it around, you know, like about 15, 16 years ago on DVD. And at the time it was out of print. It didn't exist on DVD. So it was like sort of the heyday of, of DVDs, you know, before streaming and before people watched movies on iTunes, it uh, it just didn't exist on DVD. So you could find stray uh, uh, VHS copies, and then uh, I first saw it around 2000. It was a copy that someone ripped illegally. Um, that was the only way you could see it on a disc, and it was you know, kind of bastardized copy, not, not the best quality. And it absolutely didn't matter. Uh, the, the work just shone through the, uh, the, the sort of poor quality of this illegally ripped disc that I generally don't remember how I got a hold of. I always, I was never good at, uh, like I'm, I'm still not good at torrenting or like, a, I don't, I've never done any of that stuff, but I, I'll, Occasionally, you know, make exceptions if stuff just doesn't exist out there. If you can't buy it legally, sometimes there's this is a good case of a movie that I just wouldn't have seen if I couldn't get a, an illegal copy. And luckily, we have a beautiful Blu-ray out right now by uh, I think it's Twilight Time that put the Blu-ray out, which uh, looks pretty immaculate. So it's nice that uh, there are people out there who are appreciating these great films and taking care of them because uh, this is a beautiful. I mean, it's a gorgeous film to look at i mean it's a it's a devastating film to watch it's it's really kind of a you know pretty uh sad story overall yet i i don't know i feel that there's there's definitely glimmers of hope in everything i think um uh david kerr of chicago uh reader said that it was john houston's 1972 restatement of his theme of perpetual loss and that it's mm-hmm. intelligently understated which i i think it's uh, i think that's very true i think that it's a uh, there is a lot of loss in this film. And I, I definitely feel it has just kind of a, a nice sense about it and the way that it kind of moves and you kind of move through these people's lives as I guess, as they're trying to find, you know, fat city, this, this kind of expression of uh, this, you know, this place that people want to get to that you want to have the good life and all of that. And, and here we are in kind of uh, uh, the, the slums of Stockton, California with this, uh, these various characters who are kind of uh, kind of lost there they may have big ambitious dreams and it's kind of sad to kind of move through this story with them because it's it's as if their dreams are never really going to uh, come true they just kind of keep figuring out how they can fight or or you know kind of just talk about it and not fight too strongly you know it's it's really interesting uh, a lot of interesting characters uh, throughout this film yeah that's very well said it's, it's to me it's an extremely evocative Film, but I think it shows that it was it's based on a novel. Um, it's also the the um, the location to me is paramount. It, it really 
so not the studio, but just is very important. Paramount meaning like the, the right. location is important. <laughs> right. But um, because the, the city of Stockton is so evocative, especially at that time, apparently what was happening at the time this was shot was the whole city was being leveled to, to create an overpass for uh, an interstate highway, which you see in the opening montage of the movie, there's a great sequence that's been much copied of just, um, you know, documentary style footage that they shot out of a van. And there's great interviews with Conrad Hall, the DP, talking about how they went around in a van with, with curtains um, on the windows in a VW van, I think it was, and just uh, pointed the camera out of the window uh, and shot people just on the street people getting their hair cut, just different people uh, on the streets of, of Stockton. That is so evocative and just beautiful. It's amazing to me uh, that the palette of this movie is so strong. The, the color palette is, is so particular. And it, feels, it feels effortless, like, like it just happened, although I'm confident that it, it's very designed kind of a film. And you see the palette reflected in the documentary-style footage the, the opening montage that to me is just it's Stockton. It's so not a, a movie that was, you know, filmed in one of our major cities, uh, you know, New York or LA or Chicago. It's, it's something else. It's, it's a different place with, with a different, you know, its own, it's its own world with its own space and time. And these characters exist in that, space and time, which is very, very slow, you know, where we spend a lot of time in this one bar. It's just the most exceptional looking scenes that I've ever seen in a bar. Very dark, very evocative. It's just, there's a lot of depth to really just everything in this movie, but in particular, the, the photography and the performances. I have been trying... Um, so hard since we since I first watched this film. I've watched it uh, all the way through once, and then again uh, almost all the way through. Um, and and I am struck as by the, some of the same things. The the palette in particular, it's it's uh, it's almost kind of jaundiced. It's got this sort of yellow and kind of green tint to it that feels like a a sense of kind of putrescence or illness that mm. um, that that combined with what I would characterize as kind of a hopeful camera. It's a camera that's telling a story that's showing these people that, you know, in a film that has an almost entire absence of redemptive characters. Right. And, and yeah. the, the camera is trying to tell you this story of people and you hope, please hope that they come out of it, that, that at some turn of scene, they are going to to find some change of heart, some, some win, some battle of will that they will be able to wake up and achieve something and turn it into something great. And they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory every single turn. And and I find it really hard to watch in that regard. And so I'm super torn by this film because I've been trying to to watch it. Um, from from the eye of of kind of camera and production and story because i had no connection with just about anybody in here they it's like every character in here hurt my feelings <laughs> uh -huh. so yeah. so i walked out like there there's 
there's no hope at the end. And I think I was, it's probably a battle of expectations because what I knew of the film was that it was a boxing film. And it's not so much a boxing film because when I hear boxing film, I hear uh, inspiration, right? I want to, I want to see the Cinderella story. And, uh, you know, Keach, uh, Stacey Keach says of, of this film, uh, the thing about Fat City that distinguishes it from other boxing movies is the characters start at point A and end up at point A. They don't go anywhere, unlike Rocky, which is more of a Cinderella story. And I think that quote is the blessing and the curse of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I think, and you know, I don't want to speak for you, Andy. I think you and I parted ways on this, on that point, right? I think you, you appreciated that more than I did. Yeah, I really enjoyed these characters. And I actually really kind of uh, started connecting to them, especially on my second watch of it. I really kind mm-hmm. of uh, found so much more going on with the characters. And, and I found all of their personal struggles to to find something better in their lives, um, kind of painful and difficult. Uh, and and uh, it was really kind of sad to watch because you could kind of see that they weren't really going to end up getting anywhere in the lives that they were leading the way they were. Um, but at the same time, I started seeing so many moments with these characters where even though they were in this place, none of them were really working against each other. They, in a sense, really, I felt that they were all kind of trying to kind of help each other. They're all being nice to each other. I mean, there were definitely, you know, difficult characters, like certainly Oma and Tully, they had a little bit of a difficult relationship. But at the same time, I really enjoyed the way that these characters still kind of you know, were, uh, they seemed to be, uh, kind of kind to each other. Earl, when, when, uh, when Tully comes, uh, that last time to Oma's place, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not like he's all upset at him or anything. He has a very kind demeanor. And we, we kind of knew that from earlier, but just the way that he talked to, talked to him and with him about his boxing and everything. And it just seemed very kind. And even that last bit with Tully and Ernie, um, I mean, there's a definitely a sense of heartbreak as they kind of sit next to each other, drinking their coffee. But I still felt there was, uh, um, I, I don't know, just the fact that Ernie sticks around to kind of be there for Tully in that particular moment when really Tully is kind of at the lowest point he's ever been in this film. Um, I just, I was really touched by it. I'm the same. I, I can identify with all of these characters. There's something, it's not that my life is so much like their life. It's just there's like, I guess there's a voluptuousness in, in the presentation of really all of these characters, there's something, maybe it's the humanity or, or their flaws that is evocative and speaks to me. It, go, it goes beyond, certainly the way this film looks, I, I just, it just makes me happy. It's, it's the kind of photography and films that I love, but it goes deeper than just the photography and the way it looks. It's really the uh, the fabric of of the story and, and the characters is just very satisfying and even <clears throat> the end of the movie Stacy Keats just kind of it's almost like he's it's really like he's dying and he gives this he looks at this the guy making the coffee behind the counter who is quite old and he just stares off into space and it's this incredible moment that is almost not really it's almost like nothing is happening but everything is happening um but it's there's no great melodrama or conflict it's he he isn't he, he isn't really going anywhere he's he's kind of going nowhere as you said i mean it, it, in a way 
Um, if, you, if I compare it to another boxing movie, Rocco and His Brothers, um, which um, you know Alain Delon plays a prize fighter, and it has a certain amount in common. There's a lot of melodrama, and it, it's even worse. I mean, it's what what happens outside of the ring is even more violent and and horrific, and it's it's um, it's scary. I mean, it's that is a scary film. There's a lot of menace. And in this movie, uh, Tully, he's kind of throwing his life away and he can't, he can't get out of his own way. And that has its own innate sense of menace, but it's, but the presentation is soft and, and also luscious. The, 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 um, the light and the colors just kind of glow and, and the characters glow and they, they sort of laugh at each other with each other. It's the kind of film, even though it's sad, I don't, it doesn't make me sad. I'm a little, it's presented, maybe this is, maybe it's not for everybody. It's presented kind of, I can watch it and be detached from, from the sadness that's, that's happening in the movie. I don't know if you guys have that sense or. Yeah. The second time I definitely felt more of that where I wasn't quite so, um, um, immediately impacted by the characters, I was able to just kind of step back and watch these guys as they as they live their lives. And I, I definitely, like I said, the second time felt a lot more of the humanity with them. I thought, you know, I'm I'm not. I tend to be a little bit more. Um, I, I I don't know if I, if it's if there isn't a a, a hook to a, a formula that I really love in these sports movies, I tend to get kind of disconnected from them or, or watch right. them a little bit more service. And that's just my own viewing habits, I, I recognize. Um, but I, that's why I'm so torn about this movie, because I find it so uh, visually appealing. And uh, I, I like how you use the word lusciousness. I mean, I, I can see it. I can almost taste this film. Um, and and that's one of the reasons it makes me so sad. Like, I'm so affected by it, uh, by the fact that, that it just ends uh, in the same sort of cycle of grief. And now it's a cycle of grief for, uh, for a new boxer to, to come in and, and maintain. And it's one of the things that, that they noted, and I haven't read the book, but uh, that the, the departure uh, from the end of the film where Ernie's actually picked up hitchhiking by two women and is then dumped out on the road after after making some sort of lascivious move toward these two women. They they kick him out of the car and leave him on the side of the road, and it ends up being a very sort of depressing, like much more depressing end to the film than even we got, um, you know, in the film as it as it was in, in Houston's vision. And I, I wonder, you know, when you look at sort of book-to-screen departures, like, um, you know, would that have been more satisfying for me as a as a final resolution or less? Um, it it certainly puts Ernie's trajectory further down the path of a parallel to Tully's, um, mm-hmm. and and you know, I I can sort of see why they went with a much more muted end. I really love the detached stare that that um, that Stacy Keach gives at the end, and then it kind of. It just kind of ends after that. For, for me, it's a perfect ending. I, I just like maybe it's a more more of more of like a sort of French cinema sensibility that that, that I'm responding to. I, I'm not really sure. It's like I, I don't exactly know what it means. It might not mean particularly much, but the mystery of it speaks to me. Well, it is very interesting, and I love that Houston employed that kind of freeze frame where you have. Uh, you have Tully looking out over all these people at this coffee shop in the middle of the night, and you've got that that 
zoom in on his eyes as everything around him essentially freezes and you just kind of you see him looking at this tableau of life that it's it's almost like this connection this realization with him that it's like this is this is it this is this is where I'm going to be the rest of my life sort of look, you know, yeah. before, before he turns around and, uh, and uh, uh, kind of reconnects with Ernie. And mm-hmm. then the two of them just sit there in kind of this tableau as they sit there drinking their coffee. I don't know. I, I think it's an incredibly strong uh, ending. And I love the, you know, we get that uh, uh, Chris Christopherson uh, helped me make it through the night kicking in again right there, which yeah. uh, to me, I, I agree. I, I just felt like this was a perfect ending to this film especially after kind of seeing him have this moment of greatness. Uh, well, I mean, greatness seemingly, uh, you know, we we know that this other boxer that he was boxing against uh, was injured and having a really hard time. But Yeah, for- which is an incredible sequence. The way, you, the way they tell us that the, the boxer that comes to town to fight, to fight him, to fight Stacey Keach, you see him in his hotel room, you see him like peeing blood he's wearing the most incredible like yellow shirt and then they fight <clears throat> then you see him there's a bit of a scene with Stacey Keach and and um Nicholas Colasanto and and Jeff Bridges and and their girlfriends and then everyone leaves and then the other boxer you know the camera lingers the other boxer pans him out and he's just walking by himself and it's so it's just beautiful and you know one of my favorite sequences in the movie is the opening. You see Stacy Keach in bed. <clears throat> it's all one shot. He wakes up he's in this tiny flophouse room that's light struck. The real sun is coming through the window and he's in his underwear and he's got this like comb over that you just don't see actors have this kind of hair nowadays unless it's a real contrived kind of a thing. Very brave hairdo for him in this one. Yeah, but and and you just yeah, and he's He's looking for a cigarette. He finds a cigarette. Then he's looking for a match. And the whole scene is him looking around his room, follows him around the room, looking for a match. He can't find a match. So then he decides, and there's no dialogue whatsoever. He decides, okay, I'll put my pants on. I'm going to go out. I'm going to get a match. He walks downstairs. You see him pause outside his building. And then he thinks for a second and then he runs back upstairs, grabs his boxing gear. And then the next scene you see him at the Y with Jeff Bridges and they, you know, they start working out. So the whole thing kicks off because there's this guy who would probably just spend the whole day in bed smoking and drinking, but he doesn't have any matches. So that's that's what kicks everything off is, (laughs) all right, I guess I have to leave because I don't have any matches, so I can't smoke. And it took me a few times watching it to even put it, put that together as simple as it is that I just thought he was, you know, this hard luck guy in his underwear, but it's just, and it's so beautiful looking. It looks incredible and there's no menace there. It's, it's sad. You know, he's got brown paper bags and bottles, not that many, you know, it's not like total dereliction, but somehow it looks, it just looks stunning. Oh, it has all the makings of a a great story of <laughs> redemption and success, right? Of course, we need to see him in this terrible kind of down on your luck state. We need to see him in his underwear in the in the sort of late morning sun, right? We have to have that, and um, I and I think you're right that that subtle sort of 
nuance of motivation. It's that just the smallest thing actually drives him to 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 make a potentially life changing decision to get back into the ring to start training again. I think yeah. that's really powerful. Um, I I did have a problem with that. I wonder if you if if you reflect on it. If I am overthinking this, but every I've watched it now twice, and I've watched this opening sequence a few more times because it it bugs me. It's the audio cue. Uh-huh. Does it is it when weird? the song kicks yes. in? Yes. So the song actually it's it's like the song starts and it's an instrumental version of the song that yeah. leads through the through that the gorgeous montage of tragedy in Stockton. And that that instrumental version leads over him in the room and looking around the room, and then it fades to silent. And then Chris Christopherson starts singing again after yeah. a few seconds. And I have so much trouble with that. I can't tell if it helps the film and I'm just missing the point wow. or if it hinders the film. That's so interesting. I've never, I've, it's never bothered me. I've never really thought that much about it. <clears throat> but now that you mention it, it's interesting. It definitely doesn't bother me, but it, it's very interesting that it, that it bothers you. It and just, I totally get it. I, I I totally get it. Because we've we've effectively had a scene change, right? I mean, we've had we've certainly had a location. We move from out, outside to inside. It feels like the cue should have happened like thirty seconds sooner, yeah, uh, or later when he leaves the building. I don't know, Andy. It, um, tell me, I'm overthinking this, and I'll I'll shut up. You know, it, it, I mean, it is a strange little thing. It's certainly something that I've picked up on um, every time that I've watched, but it's it's never bugged me. I guess uh, it's it is one thing that I've I've certainly noticed but uh Mm. yeah i don't know i guess normally you'd have it all kind of connected as one big thing but my memory of it is the cue kicks in when he commits to putting his pants on and leaving the house right he's getting dressed because i think he's putting his shoes on when the title itself comes up right yeah i feel like the cue happens it's a signal that he's committing to leaving the house um which i've always liked but i can I totally get that it could be irksome. Well, irksome to me as a uh, as a podcaster about movies is certainly um, not to say that I don't have a lot to learn from director John Huston. And <laughs> so, you know, yeah. maybe let's transition into what we can, uh, what we should be learning from from Houston in this particular piece. Well, I love that he himself says that the film is about people whose life is running down the drain and they don't know how to plug it. <laughs> Uh-huh. I think that's a yeah. great quote. Um, yeah. I mean, we've talked about John Huston a number of times on this show. I really enjoy uh, what he brings to the screen here. And uh, I, I this is the first film that he had done um, completely in the U.S. in a, quite a period of time. Um, and it was in a period where I, I know he had been making a lot of ones that had been uh, kind of uh, flopping. Um, but this one did, I mean, and this one didn't do great at the box office, but it did get a lot of critical acclaim. So I don't know. I, I think that he brings a lot to the table here. Having actually been a boxer, I think that is something um, that he can kind of uh, shed some light on in this whole world of amateur lightweight boxing and all of that. Um, I I like what he's doing here. Even though I'm I'm not bullish on many of the characters in the film, I am incredibly bullish on particularly the final uh, bout, uh, which I think was conceived and shot just beautifully. And for, you know, in, in terms of me not having a whole lot of emotional momentum for the characters leading up to that point, it went from, you know, zero to full speed during that bout. It was it was shot in a way that I, is sort of indescribable, um, it, the way it, it made such a connection to me, and I didn't expect it at all. 
mm-hmm. how can you talk a little bit about what you get out of that when you're looking at it from the perspective of a, a, a shooting something like this? Let's compare it to the most recent Rocky movie, Creed. Sure. Which, um, which I which I quite liked. It's it's a movie with a lot of virtuosic movement, a lot of virtuosic boxing with these elite athletes performing at a very high level and the their movements and the camera movements that respond to them are all virtuosic you know everyone's very muscular the camera movement is muscular and and there's a lot of great stuff therein and but in fat city albeit 40 40 years ago um 40 plus years ago these are these are not elite boxers. They're they're all guys that are in decent shape. They can certainly box better than than I can. I don't box, so I can <clears throat> I can find satisfaction in watching the performative aspect of these athletes doing something better than I can. And, and then the the camera responds to them similarly. It's not. It's like it, but it's only so virtuosic. Their movements. That they're blocking. And the camera blocking that responds to it, you know, if you, or <clears throat> if we were to compare it to something like Raging Bull, which similarly boxers at a really high elite level, and then probably the the most virtuosic camera movement that, that exists in a boxing picture to respond to the boxing movements. So to watch Stacy Keach, who his character gets winded almost immediately. But, you know, what they're doing is it's only so special. And the, the, uh, the way it's rendered photographically is it's very straightforward. There's no, um, it's not stylized. The, you know, the, the, there's a lot in the movie that is stylized and, and has, has a lot of style to it. But you don't find that in how the, the fights are rendered photographically. It feels, uh, I mean, there's a lot of energy with it, too. I mean, the way that it just feels almost, uh, I, I don't want to say documentary style, but it does have a, f- a sense where these guys are just having a real fight. It doesn't feel choreographed. It just feels like they're really boxing, and the camera's just really kind of there trying to track them. And I like that sense where it does feel like a little more, uh, something about it just gives it a, a sense of some... Uh, kinetic uh sense kinetic vibe of it in a way that's different from something like raging bull which i mean that one really feels almost more like a choreographed dance the way the camera's moving and the way that scorsese is throwing in all of his little tricks and sound effects and everything this one just feels like we're really there watching these guys really boxing which i really like um it's yeah this might be a a weird comparison but um there was a, a film with liam neeson called rob roy uh-huh. Um, that came out in the 90s that has a sword fight between uh, him and Tim Roth at the end. And likewise, that fight, I don't know why it's always stuck in my head, but it, it was like, I think, probably one of the first sword fights in a movie where it actually felt much more realistic because like they'd be swinging swords for a while and then they'd have to kind of stop and hold their sword on the ground and kind of catch their breath because they're swinging these giant, you know, hunks of metal around. And it actually kind of made me feel like, wow, this is, feels like a real sword fight. These guys get tired swinging these swords around for a while. Yeah. Nothing like the sort of dance of kind of Southpaw or Creed or Cinderella man, like all of these things are, are much, much more sort of choreographed. 
Right. And this yeah. one actually felt like it was real people. They get tired. You've got that kind of boxer hug where they're kind of leaning on each other, kind of trying to catch their breath for a quick moment before the ref yeah. comes and separates them. Uh, and yeah, it just felt, it felt really authentic. And because of that, I just, I really uh, got very energized watching them. Well, the other thing that I think they make good on in this, in this particular sequence and what I, I kind of resonate with as we go into the final throws of the film is that um, it really cements for me the fact that this bout is just another cog in the machine of Stockton. And these guys are just parts that are completely uh, uh, replaceable, completely fungible in the in the mechanics of this community. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that he borrows money from people all the time and falls in and out of favor from people but can come back in and fight a few fights and then get all depressed and leave, somebody is always going to be there to take his place. And that that kind of lends to the overall kind of cultural sadness that I think this film and I think, uh, you know, Houston does an admirable job of showcasing. As to me, it mitigated by <clears throat> the Nicholas Colasanto character, the, the Tully's trainer, and his sidekick, who's like the, the guy, I, I don't know, I don't know the actor's name, I don't know what is what you'd call what he does, but the guy who like carries the bucket and the sponge, there's a few scenes where the two of them just have this patter that's just hilarious. Every, they, they're, they're seen in a diner where there's just the two of them. There's you know a few other scenes where um, you know Colasanto's sidekick is talking about Tully and he's like, "I'd always lend him money. It was movies, movies. He's always wants to see movies." And clearly, it's like you know he's borrowing money from you to buy booze. Yeah, like he right. Wasn't, probably wasn't going to the movies every day, but it's like it's very sweet that. You know, he's so gullible. And then there's just like a few fringy characters that really look like they're, you know, probably ex-boxers, a little, you know, punch drunk or something like that, that just really flesh it out. Yeah, they had a lot of, uh, like the cast was full of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, boxing people that... Uh, that, <laughs> that weren't Houston boxers. No, that <laughs> yeah. were boxers. I well, mean, I Houston... know, but they weren't playing boxers in the film. I think the best yeah, one right, was, right. was uh, the boyfriend, right? Yeah, Curtis Coke Curtis uh, as Earl, right? He was a former welterweight champion of the world. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and like Sixto Rodriguez was uh, the, uh, the one that um, plays Lucero that yeah. is, is fighting Keach at the end. He was a... Uh, the middleweight and light heavyweight headliner of the middle and late 60s in Northern California. Um, the the assistant, uh, Ruben's assistant, um, was a boxer. Um, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I mean, there was a bunch of different boxers that uh, that he kind of cast all through. So uh, yeah. if, you if you know, for people who were familiar with kind of the this type of boxer um, in the uh, in the 60s and 70s, then uh, you might recognize a few faces. We do a we do a segment on this show uh, called first shot last shot where we look at the first shot and the last shot of the um, of the movie and and just kind of uh, see how they uh, what kind of story we're getting from these and and it's I think it's interesting here you know the first shot we get this this aerial of the freeway construction in in Stockton uh-huh. um, kind of the future right it's it's the development of the freeway followed by this montage of the what the life on poverty row in Stockton actually looks like and then the last shot we have these two guys sitting in this coffee shop this very long uh, shot this tableau that kind of pulls back a little bit as they sit silently uh, drinking their coffee and we hear a little bit of uh, Christopherson singing what do you get out of the way that uh, that uh, Houston kind of frames this film with these two shots? Anything in particular? What a great question. I'm glad you like isolated those two things because it, it really puts it in context for me. I mean, the, the first shot you see, you see the entire city 
just as you might, you know, in, in the same way that if you if you took a similar shot of a different city, it might it might look very similar. But he's showing this small universe of a city the way that almost looks like a quilt. It's like an overhead aerial view that could be, you know, almost makes it look like something different, <clears throat> like like an abstract painting or or a quilt or just you know blocks of color and shapes. But therein is the world of of the film. And then at the end, within that, probably, you know, ostensibly somewhere within that quilt is probably that, that bar or the coffee, the coffee shop where you have the character going off the rails who's starting to have some promise but can't get out of his own way. And he's just having that moment where you, you, who knows what's really happening, but... He's just in utter despair and not sure if he's ever going to get out of it. And it's just so emblematic of the human condition. And it's just such a satisfying cinematic way for me within that, within the universe, the small universe that you see in that first shot. It's an interesting um, uh, kind of unfolding. I, I mean, the, the montage we've kind of already mentioned, but I love how it's like, I mean, I swear there's a point in there where it's like, four or five images all kind of folding over each other as we kind of, as we kind of start, you know, far up on the freeway and then kind of come down into Stockton and into Mm. kind of, uh, into kind of this area. It's this really interesting way that it kind of gives us this world and kind of, uh, it's almost like the city of Stockton is unfolded for us and we kind of get right down in there, ending up on the La Barata, the cheap one, as far as the, uh, the little, uh, slum that, uh, that uh, Tully is living in, yeah, and then and then that beautiful tableau at the end. I mean, it's an interesting look at these two guys. Uh, you know, we are we are now down in there, and we're just kind of. Uh, it's almost like we're looking at a painting of of life in this, and it's uh, you know as we uh, you know at the beginning we're seeing the future, we're seeing the the freeway that's going to be cutting through Stockton and taking people forward. You know, and, you know the whole yeah. idea of the freeway being the future and all of that. But here we are, kind of almost in the underbelly under the freeway the part of the city that's never really going to change and these are the people who will always be there even though the future kind of passes them by um i think it's a great way to kind of uh, begin and end this film and kind of give us this world with these characters in it it's beautifully emblematic of the emotional journey too right we get this tour this sort of um kind of this google earth view tour of this of external to internal like broad to to very narrow um view of their physical space and the uh, the last shot gives us kind of resolution to the the a, a very similar view of their internal journey in this film, which ends up going very much nowhere, uh, and I, I think it ends up being a, a really powerful uh, pairing between the physical and the emotional using these two pieces. That's well said. I like that. Let's uh, let's look a little bit at the cast. Uh, we've already talked uh, about uh, a bit about Stacy Keach. Um, he was originally not the first uh, intended to play. Tully. That was Marlon Brando. They actually uh, went to Marlon Brando first to talk to him about it. Which, wow, I never knew that. Yeah, which is, it seems crazy watching this film, uh, knowing that Brando was uh, ended up doing Godfather pretty much at the same time. Um, but Brando was being a little cagey. He enjoyed the script, but uh, he wasn't making up his mind. And so Houston, uh, I guess he said, you know, I don't, I don't like waiting around for actors to make up their mind. So he just kept looking. And uh, uh, and ended up with Stacy Keach after having seen uh, the Traveling Executioner, and reportedly Brando later said that he was disappointed. But you know he ended up in The Godfather, so 
he was he made out okay, I think. There's, there's <laughs> another universe somewhere where Stacy Keach is actually the Godfather. Yeah, <laughs> that's a universe I'd like to visit. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did actually get knocked out in this film, right? That was the one that the the shot of him getting knocked out is the shot they used in the film. Right. Yeah. If I understand that correctly. Yep. Sixto uh, pops him a good one. Yeah. Yep. Wow. I didn't. I didn't know that either. Um, it's the it's the one where he nails him talk, on the jaw. The more I'm going to learn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the one where he gets uh, hit in the jaw by Lucero, and and he kind of turns, and I mean, even uh, even Keach looks a little dazed as he falls down to the ground and is just kind of sitting there for a minute while uh, while the ref uh, wow. counts uh, before he stands back up. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. I mean, uh, Keach said, you know, working uh, training with these guys, uh, he said he got the be- into the best shape of his life. My respect for fighters was elevated. I came to understand how hard they work to get into shape. And I think, I definitely think it's true. I mean, when you're doing these boxing films, I think there's a certain level of uh, reality you need to give. And so you really need to train and really learn how to box and kind of almost put yourself into it. It's a little different than, than baseball. You know, you're actually getting pummeled for the, uh, for the love of your art. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, Jeff Bridges as Ernie, uh, I think this film actually, it really showcases everything Jeff Bridges is truly exceptional at in terms of playing understated, unexuberant characters uh, that are super engaging to watch moving on screen. I showed a clip of this film to a friend somewhat recently, showing him the scene where Jeff Bridges first walks into the Lido gym where Nicholas Colasanto works. And you just see him kind of standing there. My friend said, it's amazing. I've seen him do that look or that shrug so many times in other movies, like to see him do it, however old he was in this movie, 19 or 20. He's so, you know, himself. He's an actor who conveys so much with his looks. I think when, uh, when Faye uh, is telling him, you know, that she's going to, she's pregnant, uh, there's just a look on his face, the way that his face kind of shifts and, and changes, or even earlier in their first conversation when she kind of reveals that she was a virgin. Um, yeah. The way that he, you can read so much in his face. He puts so much out there, and, and whatever it is he's saying, you can still read kind of what's going on in his mind. And I, I just feel like that that has been Jeff Bridges through his whole career. I mean, you can get so much out of him, and, and his eyes can convey so much in just the littlest looks. It's just fascinating to watch him. This yeah. is officially the first, the, the earliest film I think I've seen him in, uh, 72. Seen... Right? He'd, he'd done a couple before, right? Yeah, Last uh, Picture Show last was right picture before show. this. Yeah, I'd seen that. Uh, I'd seen Last Picture Show. But Yin and Yang of Mr. Go, uh, Halls of Anger, I've seen none of those things. Plus yeah. all the TV that he yeah, did. Yeah, all the TV. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I saw him in Sea Hunt in an old rerun of Sea Hunt, I guess. Uh, but yeah, he was, uh, you can see just how charismatic he is, uh, on screen in this film, just in that sequence alone. He says very little in this movie. It is a very visual film in the sense that there isn't that much dialogue. There is dialogue, but there's not, it's not, but it's not too talky and particularly mm-hmm. his character. There's a lot of moments between him and Tully where it's almost like you're kind of watching this guy mulling over in his head, you know, the, the friendship he has with this this boxer. I mean, he acknowledges that he had seen Tully in a fight, even though Tully ended up yeah. losing. But it's yeah. like he, he knew Tully was a great, you know, at one point. And, uh, and it's almost like he's mulling over in his head, like, is this, is it benefiting me to keep hanging out with this guy? Or is it, is it really not going to get me anywhere? Yeah. Um, but he kind of just kind of keeps sticking in there. And it's interesting to watch. I really enjoy him in this. Okay. Thank Susan you. Tyrell is Oma. Now I know I'm going to get letters, <laughs> but, but my experience watching Susan Tyrell 
uh, Andy, forgive me. I had the same feeling I'm sure you get watching The Fifth Element every time Chris Tucker comes on screen. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wow. Enlighten me. What is, I'm not privy to... to the, oh. do, you, do you remember Fifth Element? Did you see that one? Yeah. So Ruby Rod, uh, oh, Ruby Rod, and he's Chris the is that? fast, fast talking uh, space DJ, and yeah. Andy, Andy doesn't uh, doesn't I like. Hate, I really hate that movie. <laughs> okay. I like Chris Tucker in plenty of other things, but I'm that just character, saying. Yeah. <laughs> that was right. a tough character. I had a similar response to Susan Terrell as Oma. I, I am baffled by the 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 critical uh, reviews that she gets for her performance in this film. I I actually really love her sort of understatedness in the first sequence when we meet her. I think uh-huh. her her like her energy is just is just great in that sequence. And they have this weird conversation, uh, Tully and, and Oma, as he's kind of having one conversation and she's yeah. definitely having another. I really like that. And then when she goes off the rails, um, I'm I'm no longer engaged uh, with her. Yeah. And and she obviously, I've already come to terms that she's she needs uh, medical intervention at this point for her alcoholism and clearly some other spectrum disorder. And it's... It, it is takes me out of the film. Uh-huh. That's I, interesting. Yeah, that's what I that's what I love about her. I think that uh it's it's an amazing portrayal of an alcoholic and I am just so uh broken up by by watching this woman who's just, you know, always asking for another cream sherry. Yeah, and, the way and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and hardly yeah. eats. I mean, I I'm fascinated by her as a character and it's just it's heartbreaking to watch. There's one line where uh, maybe she says to Earl, where she said, "I want a cream sherry." And the way she says it makes me laugh every time my wife and I will say that to each other, not even what, just like, just to get a laugh. And, um, I know what you mean. It makes perfect sense that you'd be put off. Um, but there's something very, there's something, I I think she's really funny, like in an intentional kind of way that, that it just, it's not like I'd love watching people suffer in life or in movies but there's something about the way she says those lines that makes me laugh and it does draw me in and then um you know the the parts later when she really goes off the rails and they get into fights to me those don't go on too long they just about to the at the point where I start to think i don't really want to watch these guys fighting for that much more it seems for me it seems to end and then we're on to something else so i i always feel saved by whomever it is houston his editor um i I never get into that space but it's i understand that that you would um it's in some ways like there's this one scene in the bar when when stacy keach and susan terrell first kind of hook up while earl's in prison um, that does it, it really goes on for quite a while. And she's talking about like her exes and how her ex-husband raped her. And then Stacey Keats like bangs his head into the jukebox, which mm-hmm. makes her like him. And it's so dysfunctional and alcoholic. And again, it's not like I love watching dysfunction and alcoholism in life or in movies, but there's something about the way it's conveyed in that bar and it looks incredible. It's just luscious looking. 
And there's something about it that just draws me in. Almost, can we compare it to another movie for a second? The Popeye Doyle character in French Connection. Occasionally, he's such a despicable person and like, you know, he's kind of this terrible guy. But I find myself, when I watch that movie, wanting to be like him. Not in the parts where he's like doing impressive stuff and chasing down criminals. But when he's, even when he's despicable, there's something... It's like he's an attractive brute. And I think Susan Terrell is also, she's an attractive brute for me. I know it's not for everyone. Um, that is a really interesting comparison. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have to chew on that one uh, in particular. The attractive brute uh, characterization is really great because when you're talking about Popeye Doyle, you're talking about a guy who, and and I, I'm just like you. I mean, this is a guy who knows how to exercise um, the the power that he has taken from the world around him, right? Not even just when he's, but but sort of socially or when he's in the bar and the the picking your feet in Poughkeepsie. I mean, he is he's exercising power in a way that is that is really subversively attractive. Yeah, um, and and uh, I I. I'm going to need to watch Susan Terrell again in that light because she's, it's such an interesting character. It's such a twist on that character, making her a woman in this film in the seventies, like what it takes for her to exercise a similar power on screen. Uh, I think that says a lot. And I think it's also amazing that, I mean, she was mid twenties when she made this film and she just feels like she has the world, uh, you know, just weighing down on her shoulders. She feels beaten down. She feels at least 20 years older. Oh, at least. She was in her mid twenties when she did. Yeah. She was like about 26 or 27. Isn't that amazing? She seems at least 10 years older. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Every bit. That's crazy. I, I love the scene that that you brought up when when the two of them are in the bar and it's that you know antagonistic relationship that becomes um, very friendly as they kind of end up connecting and the whole you can count on me right down the line yeah like all of that stuff it just it's to me it was like the the perfect example of dysfunction and how um, a couple people who are dysfunctional you know if if the if the gears line up just right all of a sudden all of a sudden everything can kind of mesh for a little while and, and the everything can spin properly but uh, it's yeah. easy to see those gears kind of get disconnected um, but just like the two of them I think for, for me the moment that really made her character sing is when right after this when they start walking down the street and she just kind of looks at him and she's just like I just love you so much oh yeah, yeah. like the second time they meet yeah it's yeah. like that man that is an amazingly powerful moment because this woman, yeah, they've only met two times, but, uh, but here she is just kind of giving herself completely to this guy because, you know, she's just so dysfunctional and he's providing exactly what she needs at that moment. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. And to me, when she says, I love you so much after telling us about all her exes and he's got the same issues. I feel like it's very balanced between the two of them and just being, being, being a mess. But, um, but, it's like, oh, so these are people who fall in love really quickly. Like in a bar, they're drunk and all that. But it, they just, she met, he, something about him banging his head into the jukebox. It just like broke, breaks the ice for her. And it's like, okay, I'm in love. Let's, I no longer have to be alone. I, don't, I no longer have to be in despair. My, my husband or boy, you know, Earl who's in prison. Like, so it's just like, to me, it makes perfect sense. Like, she was alone in despair. Now there's this guy who's willing to do something crazy for her, and it just totally breaks the ice. And it doesn't, uh, 
it's disturbing and yet I, I, I totally buy it. You know, I, I think when we're talking about her and buying her performance, it's the, the sort of yin to her yang is, is Curtis Cokes. Uh, he has one. This is his feature credit. There was the yeah. Muhammad Ali World Heavyweight Championship. He was a guest as himself because obviously he was a, a, a bo- professional boxer. But uh, it, uh, that is possibly the most disappointing thing about this film, that there, that there wasn't uh, a, a anything else in his career Curtis Cox as an actor because yeah. I thought he was really nuanced and uh, a, a beautiful partner for her in the very few scenes we have with them together. Yeah, he's special. He's very special. Yeah. You, you don't. It's. You, you, I think the presence of certain uh, non-actors like Curtis Cox yeah. in this movie it totally works. It's not, and the movie isn't hyper populated by by people or actors like him, which I think is what makes it work. There's a dynamic quality to how people like him and probably, you know, the, the, the guy who's the assistant to Nicholas Colasanto, like how those guys are used and accentuating what's special about them without making the, the momentum of the story flatten out, which sometimes happens in, in movies where, you know, dramatic movies with non-actors. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like flat lines. Nicholas Colasanto, uh, I, I went back and watched a couple of, of Cheers episodes after I watched this movie the first time, and, and uh, I know they make a big deal about how his sort of backstory in, in the show is that he was a baseball coach, but I just can't see him uh, as any other kind of coach. Than, yeah, <laughs> than a boxer's ringside coach after this film. So, uh, I'm I'm all for revisionist history uh, in so this case. Go, yeah. Is. So, yeah. Development, getting this thing made. We've already talked about the fact that this was shot uh, mostly on location in Stockton. Did a great job of of uh, demonstrating kind of what this film, uh, where this film was set. Uh, cinematography by Conrad L. Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel like this is. This is your wheelhouse. <laughs> I, you know, the big question for me when I think about this in the context of you, especially when I look at at the work that you have done, I'm I'm trying. This is probably my failing more than anybody else's, more than than sort of the world. But uh, I'm trying to put myself in a place of what is it that you are learning from a film like this that you that you find yourself inspired by to go apply in your own work. Uh, great question. There's many different things that speak to me about the film. I would say the primary one is it's it's a dramatic film from a script with actors that's not, despite the fact that there's this uh, documentary montage in the beginning that's integrated, it's a dramatic film with actors reading from a script that's blocked and shot and designed in such a way that that I, I feel like it's it's has this like heightened realism. It's it has naturalistic qualities, but it also has certain theatrical qualities, like you know Susan Terrell's performance, or or, or Stacy Keach, or Nicholas Colasanto. Like the, there's these dramatic actors, experienced many of whom did TV, integrated into this piece that is that is very realistic and. Um, so that's the primary. That's the primary thing. My my love, you know, the thing I love the most is shooting movies that that are not um, 
you know, working from a script and being designed, but, you know, doing them in such a way that, that um, ideally you get to a place where things are, feel real or, or a certain kind of naturalistic not, and not just uh, improvised. I've, I've worked on things where there's been improvisation and had, had good experiences of, of just recently um, uh, shot for Judd Apatow, who's big on improvising. But even wor working with Judd, it's like we're working from a framework where we're designing something that's based on a script and, and, and it's blocking. It's, it's not, you know, it's not documentary work. So to me, this film is an excellent example of working from making a movie from a very specific framework. But in, in the execution of this film, it just glows. To me, Fat City is it's so effervescent. And it's just, you know, a big part of that is the photography and certainly the production and costume design. But it's just, to me, it's so well integrated into the whole. The photography, Conrad Hall's work, to me, is very well integrated and incredibly beautiful. It's beautiful up until this kind of ideal point where it stands out and it's luscious and it glows. But it's not so dense or overbearing that it, it becomes distracting to what's, to, you know, the, the story or, you know, the, the world of, of the movie, the world, this world in Stockton. Yeah, Ray Stark, uh, the producer, uh, didn't quite see it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I love it, too. I think it's just stunning to look at, just beautiful. I love the darkness through it. Definitely something that was kind of big at the time. Um, certainly, we would see that uh, with uh, with Godfather coming uh, right around the corner from this. But uh, Stark said he didn't like how dark it was, and he actually fought with Conrad Hall about it constantly, apparently. And it sounded like what I heard is in the end, he wouldn't actually let him time the picture. He uh, kind of took that uh, away from him and uh, making sure that he got to be in there. You guys probably would know this better because you're, I think, more studious than I am. But I also <laughs> heard I heard that... Houston was pushing Conrad Hall to make things even darker, that it was not just Conrad Hall on his own devices making things dark. I heard particularly the bar scenes. Uh, Houston was pushing him to make things dark. I don't know if you saw that in your in your in your any of your research. I feel like I do remember reading something about that where where Houston was wanting it uh, to be that way. He wanted it um, to be darker and and everything. Um, I can't remember specifically though, but I do feel like that was something that I read. Conrad Hall definitely said he could not watch the film for a long time, and he was very non-specific. I'm 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 guessing it's because of what you found out about Ray Stark, and certainly if he was not allowed to time the picture, I'm sure that would make it difficult to watch. But then he said, you know, in his later years that he eventually obtained a print and would show it to students because so many people would ask him about it that he eventually just embraced it. And, but yeah, that, that sounds horrific. Like to be the idea as a, as a cinematographer, you prepare something, then you go shoot it. But then you really... <clears throat> You really finish the work when when you time when you time the movie, you know, which is for maybe people listening who, who don't know what that is. Please. It's you you sit with a colorist, a professional colorist, and go scene by scene, and you you 
make things brighter if they need to be if, if they're able to be made brighter or darker if they're too bright or you add um, you add a little bit of red if things are looking too blue or add a little bit of blue if they're looking too red and nowadays we do all of this digitally and it's become a very streamlined simple kind of a process where you you can sit in a room and you can really affect just about anything and you can isolate people's faces and you can if a window is too bright just that window can be made darker at, at this time you know fat city would was uh there was no nothing digital in the process and you know the movie was shot on a film the movie was timed on film which is to say that any corrections would have to be done photochemically in a lab so that you would um be you'd take a negative of the it wouldn't be the original negative but you'd create a dupe negative and then strike another print and you'd basically be using this photographic photochemical process to this very painstaking and slow so it was a lot more difficult back then if something was exposed a certain way which is to say if you uh you know how you commit the image to negative um, capturing it in camera if, if it was a certain way it was more difficult to do any shifts or, or correct it later so um now and especially if you're photographing digitally it's um it's a lot easier to manipulate things later and a, a lot of cinematographers don't like that because people can come in after the fact and change things around uh, make them make them a lot brighter if you wanted them darker or, or, or vice versa um, so the concept of a cinematographer being kept out of the color timing process at the end is basically it's just horrific that 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 might happen because it really what it means is all of the work that you've put into the movie does not get to really be completed um, interestingly there are instances where you know as a cinematographer if you get very busy sometimes your schedule might prohibit you from fully participating um, you might there's now especially with digital many people do it remotely um, by you know going into a lab in whatever city you're in and they sort of simulcast the color timing process right luckily i've i've turned down projects to keep myself available to uh to time movies precisely for this reason because it it's one of the most satisfying parts of the process it's almost like as a cinematographer it's almost like your reward for all of this right you get to see it all work all look the way that you were intending it to. Well, look. especially, yeah. I mean, I can imagine if you you start a project with a vision, you actually don't get to finish it until you've timed it. You don't that's, get to see the that's vision. It. That's correct. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think it speaks uh, a lot to uh, what the work that Hall was doing with this film. The fact that it still looks as good as it does, even if uh, he wasn't able to actually do the timing on it. I think at that time there was a school of cinematographers, and I know Gordon Willis who shot The Godfather and. Annie Hall and a lot of amazing movies. The cinematographers of this era would talk about exposing the negative in such a way that it could not be shifted or manipulated by anyone else later. And huh. Gordon Willis talked about doing that with Godfather, which at the time was, I mean, it's still a big presence in, in everybody's lives, but it was an enormous production at that time. And he was doing a lot of rash underexposure 
and a lot of big actors and and he was doing it in such a way that you really couldn't change very much there's just no <clears throat> there's very little latitude we call it um, making the negative very thin which is to say that there isn't a lot of information to work with if you wanted to try and boost it back up and it's probably the case in much of this much of the fat city scenes particularly the scenes in the bar where um there's these, these beautiful wide shots in the bar kind of like establishing sort of master shots where everyone's in silhouette and if you just if you look at it it's like there's no information in that that when people are in silhouette if you wanted to bring out detail in their faces, like it's just, you can tell, it's just not there. It's the kind of thing that can freak out uh, certain people, I don't know, producers, investors, um, even directors. Uh, uh, and yeah, it's, it's um, there's different ways to describe working like that. Um, sometimes we say working on the edge of the negative, which is to say, you know, you, you, shoot things in such a way, but, you know, naturalistically, um, without a lot of fill light. And if you're on the edge, sometimes, sometimes you might fall off the edge and not be able to bring, <laughs> bring people's faces back. It's the kind of thing that can make, uh, other people very nervous. And, and when you shoot film, the interesting thing about shooting film versus digital is, and particularly at this time in 1972, uh, there was no such thing as the video tap which I don't know, uh, you know, for those not familiar, if you shoot with a film camera um, now, if you sh in 2016, if you shoot film, there's a way, there's a little miniature video camera inside of the film camera that you can feed to a monitor and at least see the framing of what the film camera is seeing. You, you won't actually know what it looks like till the film is processed. Whereas when you shoot digital, there's a direct feed and you pretty much see what the camera is shooting with, with a digital camera. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's always slightly different than what you see on set, but it's very, very close. So in the old days in, in 72, if, if things you really don't know what you have until 24 hours later, sometimes more, if you're on location, probably they didn't have a lab in Stockton, California. So maybe they would see footage 48 hours after the fact and yeah, you know, once you're done shooting a scene, if if those guys weren't, you know, Ray Stark or if John Houston weren't weren't liking it, then it's it's a Megilla to go back and reshoot something. So yeah, it takes a lot more work. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. I think the look for this film is um, just a, a really beautiful beautiful look. It definitely kind of has an Edward Hopper esque sort of vibe to it. Um, especially like you look at the scene in the bar. I mean, it really feels, I mean, uh, almost darker than Edward Hopper, really. I mean, it's just so dark. There's so little light in there. But it does feel so natural. And I think that's what um, what I really enjoy about the look that, that uh, Conrad L. Hall brought to uh, the film here. Um, let's uh, jump forward and talk about some music here. I mean, we already talked about Help Me Make It Through the Night, um, Chris Christopherson's song, which... I hear it was actually a new recording for it. I I, I heard that uh, Marvin Hamlich, who was the uh, music supervisor on the film, who had um, who'd already been doing great things and uh, just in a couple of years would be um, make, making uh, great uh, mixes for all the songs in uh, The Sting, 
Um, but here, he actually had Chris Christopherson record a version that uh, my understanding is even more melancholy than the original <laughs> version. Mm. Um, and it's uh, it certainly is. But man, does this song just uh, just stick in my head. It's just such mm. a touching song. It's so haunting. Um, it's There's such a plea for... Uh, for that help in this song, and I, I just really, I, I really dig this song now. And Hamlish, uh, there, there are a number of songs. I, I think the score in the film is very sparse. I'm not sure if there's uh, really much of any score to speak of. Actually, I, now that I think about it, I, I, I remember hearing a lot of songs uh, throughout, but I, uh, it feel, it felt very uh, just kind of uh, like present in the real world. Like we just have a few songs here and there, just kind of uh, setting the tone and setting the the pace for this with this help me make it through the night, particularly bookending it. Um, but then also we have some instrumental bits of it uh, throughout the film. It just, uh, I think it really added to the the vibe for the film. They used, I, there were, there were two other tracks, the look of love, um, uh, dusty Springfield and if uh, right. performed by bread, but uh, in turn, I think you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't have any notion of the, of an actual score. It was really sparse. Yeah. That's my memory of it too. I don't have any of the credits in front of me or anything, but it it seems I was always surprised to see Marvin Hamlish's name there, the guy who right. wrote the music for a chorus line. It's like, <laughs> wow, this movie it's so interesting. And uh, yeah, just a couple years, like I said, he'd go on to win that Oscar for uh, for finding the right music to put the sting uh, put into the sting and really really kind of help create the world for that particular film, which yeah. I think he did a fantastic job in that film. Um, speaking of awards, this film, uh, Susan Terrell was the only person who got an Oscar nomination in this film uh, for a supporting actress. She lost mm. to Eileen Heckert uh, in the movie Butterflies Are Free. I've only seen the stage version of that. I've never seen the film. Have you seen the film of that before? No, not a year. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a kind of a hippie movie. But uh, it, it was interesting. I could uh, potentially understand why that actress might have won based on at least uh, the character in the play. Um, and then uh, Susan Terrell also uh, got a uh, New York Film Critics Circle nomination and a National Society of Film Critics nomination. Nobody else got nominated for this film, which is uh, really disappointing. Although you you uncovered a story, Andy, about Stacy Keach and the New York Film Critics Association that you have to tell because I was stymied by this. Right. So he uh, so Keach. Um, as far as the nomination for Best Actor for the New York Film Critics Association, he said, or this was what I read, under the then extant rules, Stacey Keach should have been awarded Best Actor honors from the New York Film Critics Circle for his portrayal of Tully, as it required only a plurality of the vote. Keach was the top vote-getter for Best Actor. At the time, the NYCC was second in prestige only to the Academy Awards. And some actors and film critics or filmmakers considered it actually a superior honor, uh, and it was a major influence on subsequent Oscar nominations. But a vocal faction of the NYFCC, dismayed by the rather low percentage of votes that would have given Keach the award, successfully demanded a rule change so that the winner would have to obtain a majority. In subsequent balloting, Keach failed to win a majority of the vote, and he lost ground to his main rival, Marlon Brando, in The Godfather. However, Brando could not gain a majority either. A compromise candidate, Lawrence Olivier, in Sleuth, eventually was uh, awarded the Best Actor (laughs) honors. So So funny. (laughs) So congratulations, Lawrence Olivier. (laughs) This comes with with great heart and forethought. That's the uh, Best Actor asterisk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Goodness. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the numbers, and then we'll get into why everybody shows up, shall we? How'd it do? 
Uh, I wish I had more information on how it did other than uh, it didn't do well. I do have this little bit from um, John Houston's bio, An Open Book. Uh, he said, Fat City had a great reception when it was first shown at, at Con in 1972. After the screening, I walked into an adjoining hall to meet the press, and they gave me a standing ovation. When that happened, I was sure it was going to be a success. But no. Wherever it was shown, it was beautifully reviewed, but audiences didn't care for it. It's a fine mm-hmm. picture, no question. Well-conceived, well-acted, made with deep love and considerable understanding on the part of everyone involved. I suppose the public simply found it too sad. It has at least one devoted fan. Ray Stark considers it the best picture he has ever produced. Hmm. So yeah, I couldn't find any numbers on this thing. Um, It uh, was a little disappointing. I was hoping to get something, but uh, it just didn't do well, uh, which is really too bad. This is definitely a film that more people should see. Well, it is currently 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. People seem to, at least the 17 reviews, uh, of uh, critics' reviews, uh, make it loud and proud on on tomatoes. Hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and rank it. What do you say? Absolutely, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and this is this is where the rubber meets the road. Filmo a filmo. We're going to see how Fat City stands on our list of all of the films that we have reviewed uh, on this very show. Uh, Andy, first up, we have uh, it against Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. This is notoriously the uh, the center of our chart, so everything ca- ends up coming up against this for some reason. So we call it the O Brother Block. Will I it pass the O Brother Block or not? I think it's an interesting film. I'm very cur- I'm going to withhold my vote until I hear Sam's because cinematographically, I think that, you know you know you look at color tone and that's another film that they made. Some I'll be completely choices. honest and just I'll be completely honest. I've never seen O Brother. <gasps> Where art thou? <laughs> So Shock it's out there. and awe. It's out there in the public. I won't. I feel much more comfortable being honest than trying to pretend no, like I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forgive you. Andy? Well, I I would say that I think Fat City is uh, the better film, but I would find Oh Brother an easier film to watch. So I'm actually going to pick Oh Brother based that's, on that. That's certainly uh, where I fall. So Oh Brother is going to take it for me. All right. Next up, we have Fat City. Or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Terry Gilliam's wow. uh, <laughs> box office disaster from 1989. I'm going to say Fat City. Fat City. Oh, see, so now on principle, it doesn't even matter. I will also go <laughs> Fat City. There you go. Uh, Fat City or going back to 1942 with King's Row. I haven't seen it. I'm going to say Fat City. Uh, really? Yeah. We liked King's Row, Andy. We did, but I really liked Fat City. All right. I'll give it to you. All right. <laughs> there you go. Fat City or A League of Their Own? Little Tom Hanks action. You know how I feel about Tom Hanks. <laughs> Definitely Fat City. <laughs> Although I love A League of Their Own. <laughs> uh, y- you know, there's, there's just a lot more joy. Certainly a lot more joy in A League of Their Own. I, I really, I mean... I'm a Tom Hanks sucker, so what am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to say a League of Their Own. Uh, you know what? I, I can't. I, I'm i a little surprised at myself. I'm going to go Fat City on this one. Wow. Okay. I know. Right. I'm a little bit surprised. You guys have actually made a pretty good case. It's a great <laughs> movie. I really, I really enjoy it. I, I really, like I watched it the second time and I was just like, man, I just really dig this movie. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Fat it's City killer. or The Bank Job. Uh, this is the uh, Jason Statham bank robbery film. I have not seen it. It's um, a solid, solid film. I'm going to say Fat City, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm also going to say Fat City. Fat City or Kind Hearts and Coronets? Wow. 
That is a really good movie. That is a really um, good movie. But I'd say Fat City. Oh, I, I'm a I'm a kind hearts on this one. I oh man, I am. Wow, I'm really that's... torn on these two. Ah, uh, boy. <laughs> Alec Guinness as everyone. Come on. That's true. That's true. Um, I'm going to say Fat City, though. All right. I know. I know. Fat City or Stagecoach, 1939. A little John <sighs> Ford uh, action. I haven't seen here. Stagecoach. Are you guys even going to air this now that I've, I haven't seen it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will, uh, it will air. It will, will air. Your, your list of shame suffer. has grown on this in That's the right. last hour. Okay. <laughs> It's a homework list for you. Uh, Definitely Fat City for me. Fat City for me, too. Sorry, John. Fat City or The Long Kiss Goodnight? The Long Kiss Goodnight. The the Ronnie Harlan movie with uh, Elliot Gould? No, no, that's The Long Goodbye. This is The the Long Kiss Goodnight with Samuel L. Jackson and Gene Davis. Oh, definitely Fat City. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering how long it would take that. How many seconds between the time you said the movie to the time he picked Fat City? (laughs) The Long Kiss Goodbye, that, that would be... I might, I might really be torn, but The Long Kiss Goodnight. Fat City is definitely the better film. The Long Kiss Goodnight is a total guilty pleasure of mine, though. It's a, <laughs> super and easy to watch. That's, that's why I'm going to yeah. do you a favor, Andy. I'm also going to say Fat City. Okay, okay there you go. Yeah, Thank you're you. off the hook. I'm off the hook. All right. Well, that puts it at 128, which is, I think, a, it's actually right under Oh Brother. That's Look at a, that. A respectable middle. That may become our new block. It could be, yeah. yeah. Fat City might be our new uh, our new block in the middle there. So, this was a a really fantastic film. Um, I'm really glad you introduced it to us. Oh, definitely. I I love this. Uh, it's it is like you said. Even though I didn't have a the connection with the the people and the story, I found really sad. It was such a beautiful work of art that that's it's um, it's too good not to celebrate. What's your uh, What's your star rating, Sam? I'm guessing uh, probably uh, out of five, you're probably going to say five. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is if I had to pick one today, this is my favorite movie. So I'd definitely give it 5. I'm I'm a 4 star. I could see it uh, I could actually see this one climbing up as I continue watching it uh, throughout my life. What about you, Pete? Yeah, I can see it um I I was I was originally a good three and a half, four. I think I'll be a good 4 star. I'm, I I think that'll that'll be a good landing place for me. I'm I need to watch it again. Uh Especially after this conversa- conversation. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. definitely a strong film. All right. Well, let's talk um, about you then. What are, what are you working on right now, and uh, and uh, that you are most proud of? We've we uh, talked in the beginning about some of the projects that you have worked on most recently, but um, but what are you what are you excited about right now? Well, there's a movie that's out right now in theaters called Maggie's Plan that uh, with Greta Gerwig, Julianne Moore, Ethan Hawke. And Maya Rudolph and Bill Hader, um, that I'm re- that I'm really proud of. Um, it's uh, kind of a, an adult Manhattan, New York, Woody Allen style comedy that Rebecca, Rebecca Miller wrote and directed that that I really like. Um, so I stand behind it. I, everyone should go see it. Definitely have to check that one out. Yeah. And then you're you're doing some TV also right now, right? I just wrapped uh, a show called Crashing for Judd uh-huh. Apatow. Um, we've just finished the first season. It's for HBO, and it's it's a new show. It, it should be out um, next year, and that was that was an awesome experience. It was great getting to watch Judd do his thing. Um, is there? Do you find a big difference in the in the in working in the TV world from from film? Yes, I mean somewhat. I mean, what. 
Judd told me when he hired me, it was he he was interested in my work and um, in movies was what drew him to me, and he was, his his hope was to make a, a cinematic feeling, cinematic looking kind of a, a a TV show. So in that regard, he was very open to things that 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 I've done before. But but there, you know, there's just at the end of the day, it was a TV show. We had uh, I shot five episodes. We would very often shoot two at a time, um, which we call block shooting. So we would, uh, you know, it, it was just a, it, it's, it's a different way of working. And then, you know, unlike a movie where you sort of, you prep and then you go shoot the whole thing in TV, you, you prep, then you go shoot, then you go back to prep the next block, then you go back to shoot. So you're, it was interesting. It was actually the, my first experience shooting a, a, a proper TV show. Sounds like fun. And uh, I guess there's always season two. Yeah. You get some more experience, right? Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. I'm knocking on wood. Uh, uh, very cool. Very cool. Well, where should cool. where should uh, people find you? Do, you? do you have a home online anywhere? Uh, do you tweet uh, anything or where people can or learn more about you? Um, I don't really have much of an online presence. My, um, I, I don't have Facebook. I don't do Twitter. Um, my Instagram, my Instagram is un, at country underscore club. Um, which is just like, it's not (laughs) (laughs) country underscore club. You can see random photos that I take. It's not like, I'm not hard selling, hard selling myself. It's just whatever strikes your fancy at the moment. Like my reel is available. Like if you Google Sam Levy DP reel, it goes to my agent's website where you can see, you know, trailers from movies I've shot, commercials that I've shot, music videos I've shot, which is just, you know, like a portfolio for people to look at, but I don't, um, I mean, in general, I, I certainly don't try and hide or anything, but I, I try to <laughs> let the work speak for itself. And then just I try and meet interesting people who want to do interesting work. And I don't know. I don't, um, I don't, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't do that much social media stuff or, or, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's all good. Um, you know, you brought a great uh, film to our, our forefront of the show here, which, you know, I hadn't... Uh, I, it was one of those movies I had heard about a lot, hadn't seen it. I'm glad I finally got to watch it. So thank you so much. And thanks for joining us in the in the next Real Speakeasy, Sam. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. This was, it was really fun. I, I learned a lot about this movie that I love from your guys' diligence, which I clearly don't have when it comes to researching <laughs> things i love we really appreciate that thanks sam absolutely yeah, and thanks right fantastic and uh thanks to our friends over at dda for making this happen and for you out there we hope you enjoyed our show if you like what you heard follow us on facebook twitter google plus instagram pinterest letterboxd flick chart and youtube and don't forget to head on over to itunes leave us a rating and comment it really does help more people find us thanks again for tuning in until next time i'm gonna go pour myself a cream sherry I'm gonna use you to be my friend I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, 
One easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on the Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. (laughs) 